Welcome to Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Uh, if you're relatively new around here, my name's Christian Lindbeck. Uh, I'm the pastor here, so it is my unique privilege to welcome you here this morning. Glad to see you at Hillcrest. Um, I also want to say that if you are an actively serving uh, veteran of the United States Armed Services or retired, uh, I say again, we see you, we honor you, and we thank you. You have our gratitude today. And I had the opportunity to meet a few kind of even in that break where we sent the kids uh, downstairs. Uh, As Tim said, we're wrapping up this series in Philippians. So 12 weeks in this short book, uh, only four chapters. To be honest with you, we could do uh, 12 more weeks in the way we have been kind of skipping over some of the details. And if you've been around, I think you would agree with me that we have found this 2,000-year-old New Testament letter to be profoundly uh, applicable in our modern lives, that it reaches up through those 2,000 years. I mean, this is, it is, it is piercingly applicable, usable, convicting, uh, and encouraging. So if you haven't heard the whole series, I'd sure love to encourage you, you can go on our website, uh, www.hillcrestchapel.com, go to resources and sermons. Uh, we post them all there. Let me encourage you to go on, listen to those sermons, get caught up, uh, especially as we wrap up these last two weeks Uh, We're getting ready to kick off our Advent series. That's the four weeks before Christmas. If that freaks you out that we're getting ready to kick off the four weeks before Christmas, uh, I understand freaks us out a little bit too, but uh, we're going to get this cleaned up and then we'll start this scandal series, which is another great opportunity to be inviting people as we get our hearts and our minds in this church uh, ready to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus at Christmas. Um, Now, back towards this book, we have been saying about this city, Philippi, and these people that we are calling the Philippians, those who are collected into the city, were a relatively new group of Christians. Paul had been in Philippi 10 years prior, and certainly he had seen converts at that time, but since then they have been active and new people have been coming to Jesus. And so you had a relatively new group of Christians Uh, As we said, in a relatively new city, it was a city manufactured uh, by the Roman Empire, in a relatively new Jesus movement. I mean, we don't have like this long-standing history of the Jesus movement. So new community, new city, wildly diverse group of people in this new Jesus movement trying to figure out um, how to be kind of life-giving, Jesus-sharing Christians Uh, just like we are, except for that they are facing just increasing pressure. And so we've told you that not only are they facing the ordinary pressures that any of us would recognize, and one of the reasons I I really want to underline this is that before we get to Paul's advice about how to deal with these things, I want you to think of the Philippians as ordinary people, Not, not idealized Bible people, but just ordinary people who are dealing with the same struggles that we are dealing with. So Uh, Just like us, uh, things happen. They get sick. Their kids are in danger. Things break in the house. You know, the wine press handle breaks or something, uh, and they got to fix it. You know, uh, trying to handle all of ordinary life. But we have learned that 
on top of that, uh, they are facing this increasing pressure. Remember, Philippi, everybody who lives there finds their identity either in their connection with or their enmity against Rome. Uh, That's their primary point of connection. And so these people who are finding their identity not in Rome, uh, but in the kingdom of Christ, are facing a lot of scrutiny from their neighbors. And we know that they are losing friendships, they're losing position, they're losing jobs, they're at risk of losing their life. And so there's regular ordinary life, plus all of this extraordinary pressure from the outside. And since it was this incredibly diverse church, they are also dealing with infighting inside the church. Uh, isn't that just, just right when we need to be unified from the pressure on the inside is when the church often turns to infighting uh, amongst themselves. So they're under this immense amount of pressure, and they do not have the New Testament. So they can't go to the Bible, uh, the New Testament scriptures, and read encouragement out of that. Uh, Paul is not with them, so they don't have a seasoned leader. They don't have this um, kind of Christian culture that they can lean into. In the midst of our life now, we have this long history of Christian understanding. We've got idioms and phrases and worship songs and letters and all these places that we can lean into that they did not have the privilege with. And so this letter uh, from Paul would have been a treasure to them and it becomes a treasure to us about how to genuinely and meaningfully live our life in the midst of actual pressure. Yeah, he is... is not just living an ordinarily pressured life, but an extraordinarily pressured life. And he's writing into their extraordinarily pressured life as well. And that's why his advice to them will be keen to us because we aren't thinking, oh, he doesn't get it. Like, but my life is really difficult. Unless somebody is trying to currently kill you for your faith while you are dealing with ordinary life, then I assure you both Paul and the Philippians can deal with the struggles that we are facing. Does that, does that make sense to you? So what I want to do is take us back into Philippians, beginning in chapter 4, verse 4. So if you would, start to find your way there. Um, if you're relatively new to studying the Bible, there's an index. Typically, there's an index in the front. Uh, that's not cheating. That's just called being smart. Uh, work your way through the index to find this small book of the Bible. Um, also, let me encourage you again, if you don't have a Bible, we have what I would call some relatively low-budget Bibles that are free in the back for you. Uh, feel free to snag one of those, but I have no problem encouraging you, make an investment in getting your own Bible. Go out and get a good Bible, bring it here, work it, get at it, get inside it, work with us uh, as you work through God's Word to us. So we're picking it up in chapter 4. Verse 4, um, I want to read it for us, and then we can begin to uh, unpack Paul's advice. He says here, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, that is general and specific prayer, With thanksgiving and gratitude, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
So here again, uh, I want you to notice that Paul is beginning this next section of thought in Philippians, precisely how he began the last section of thought in Philippians, which is precisely how he has begun every section of thought in Philippians, with rejoice in the Lord. Sixteen times in four chapters, he's used some iteration or variation of rejoice in the Lord. I say again to you, rejoice in the Lord. And so it raises, why does Paul keep saying this? I, I mean, I think that we've got it. He has said, rejoice in the Lord. Each section of thought is begun with that. Why does Paul keep saying, rejoice in the Lord to us? And I, I think certainly it's good advice. It bears repeating. He says it doesn't hurt you to keep hearing it. But I think it is to suggest that it is a hard thing to learn. Uh, that Paul knows learning to rejoice in the midst of your difficulty does not come to human beings naturally. That in our broken state, uh, what comes to us naturally is complaint. I don't know, what comes to me naturally in the midst of difficulty is, dear Lord, this sucks, make it stop. Uh, not, you know, that, that's at least my natural inclination. And so he keeps repeating something. I think there's a gentleness and an empathy to his repetition where he understands it is hard to learn this. It is unnatural to us in our broken state, especially when we're under pressure. And they were under an enormous amount of pressure. And it's one of those things that you can only learn by repeatedly trying it out. Uh, this rejoicing in all circumstances, a rejoicing in the Lord. Now, there's so much that I would love to point out that's just happening uh, in verses 4, 5, and 6. Uh, but this morning, I'm going to discipline myself. And it's been hard. <laughs> I'm going to discipline myself to three points. You should be glad because it started with 12. So 12 has become three. So that's your first amen. God is good. Uh, <laughs> uh, and they're all about Paul's answer to anxiety, that he realizes the Philippians are under significant pressure. He sees their situation. He knows his own situation, and he is speaking into theirs. Those three points, those three answers from Paul about how we handle anxiety. Uh, the first thing that I want you to know, the first point is anxiety is normal. I think them him saying hey, don't be anxious, is built on the idea that he obviously knows that they're anxious. If you have to keep saying, don't be anxious about something, what does that mean? People are anxious, right? It, it assumes anxiety. When Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't be worried, why does Jesus keep saying, don't be worried? Because he knows that you're worried. That's the sort of the obvious part, right? So it's not as though uh, Paul is saying, I never worry, and so you should end up not worrying like me. He's saying, I know that you're anxious. So he sees their actual circumstances. He sees their anxiety. Uh, Paul isn't without anxiety himself. So it is, this isn't like a plea from some perfected biblical scholar. This is an empathetic cry from another Christian who is living in the difficulty of circumstance and has learned about the superior rejoicing that comes with God and is trying to share that with them. Does that make sense to you? And so uh, it's the, the point that he is driving at with them is I see that in fact you are anxious like a normal human being. Um, 
Paul frequently describes his own suffering. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 28 of this same book, uh, when Paul is talking about Epaphroditus, he says, I needed to send him back to you. Therefore, I was eager to send him back to you so that when you see him, you may be glad and have less anxiety. In other words, Paul here is already confessing his anxiety. It's just that he has learned something about superseding truth. Can I say something to you? You are not a weird or bad Christian when you have anxiety. I want to pause. It is not wrong to suffer anxiety. In other words, even Paul had anxiety. He understands that they are in the midst of actual suffering. He's not judging their anxiety. He's simply equipping them with what to do with anxiety. If we're at least talking about somebody with a normal, uh, and I got to say that carefully, this assumes sort of normal, healthy brain. So I want to be clear that I'm not talking about struggling through with PTSD or significant chemical problems for which there are answers. But given a normal human brain, that he is empathetic with them, that it is normal for them to suffer anxiety. It's just that he, Paul, has learned to look at life and look at his worry and put it in the context of the superseding joy of Jesus Christ. Do you remember that he has already said in this book, he is rejoicing in real life, not pretend life. In other words, he sees life for what it actually is, the struggles that he is in. He's writing from prison, so he is able to identify uh, with trouble. But in the midst of his trouble, he is remembering who Jesus is, what he has done for us, his resurrection, his lordship, his salvation, our free gift of peace, the gift of life and purpose that, that being aligned with God and knowing him actually provides for us a worthwhile life. And it's not Paul that's saying, I don't notice the anxiety, and so I choose this as when I realize what's true It's so much greater. Literally, he cannot contain his joy about the reality of life. Not the idea of life, but he said, when I look at life, even in the midst of my trouble, I see how spectacularly good it is to walk with God. When I understand who he is and who I am and I'm walking out, I see that he can take every difficulty and every problem and transition it into me becoming like him that I can grow in love and grow in trust and love these human beings, that instead of being frustrated by the people who are causing difficulty for me, I can rejoice in the opportunity to love them, Uh, that I can see each problem and each person and every opportunity of life as a chance to understand him better and grow, that he is extending the hope of the first hope of this letter is that not that there isn't anxiety, but that rejoicing towers over anxiety. That rejoice, his rejoicing in real life is so much greater than his suffering that it subsumes, it consumes, it covers over, it towers over anxiety. So he can say honestly, yes, things worry me, but when I look at life, it is so much greater to rejoice than it is to be anxious. The anxiety is normal, but the rejoicing is the greater truth. Are you with me? 
So, it's, so I think it is key for us to hear as Christians um, that it's not, you know, floating in an idealized world where we are not suffering from our context, but it is looking at the real world, world, world squarely in the face and saying, seeing the trouble, I see how good it is to be with God. And that when I will turn to him, even in the midst of trouble, I can turn my trouble into transformation. But the anxiety is normal. Number two, and this is really important for Paul, I want you to notice that he says we trust in Jesus and not an idea. Verse four says, rejoice in the Lord always. Verse six says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, talk to God. In other words, this idea is predicated on the idea that we are talking to Jesus who is real. Uh, sometimes I, I, there, I struggle in communicating. In fact, it's in particular uh, in this service, part of my prayer is that uh, I communicate clearly to you and that I feel like you are hearing from me. In fact, this is sometimes I'm coming down. This, I would like to electrify your seats sometime. To make sure you are with me and hearing me to say, because the idea here is Jesus is real, proven on his death and resurrection and on his miracles. And what he's saying is, we don't have a hope in an idea. We have a hope in a proven person. His name is Jesus Christ. He's actually proven what he's done. So this is not, hey, have a good idea or a good perspective. Paul's not saying when you get into trouble, have the right perspective, buck up and feel right about things. Uh, your good perspective is about as flimsy as we are. Um, like when you are in the midst of trouble, depression, or an anxiety attack, or something is really bringing you down, have you ever had somebody tell you, it's okay, cheer up, it's going to be okay? That, that's not just useless, it's frustrating. If I could be okay, I would have already chose to be okay. Like if it was just like, oh, that, that's it. All I got to do is decide to be okay. I, you, in the midst of it, it is not about choosing like this good idea of being okay. This whole thing is built on the idea Jesus Christ really is God, really was born as a man, really came to earth, really died, really was resurrected, really sent us the Holy Spirit, is actually with us. You can actually look at him and talk to him about these ideas. If that's true, he's saying, I give you the hope of looking eye to eye with the man, Jesus Christ, that in the midst of your difficulty, you don't look down and read a good idea. Look eye to eye as much as you can in your mind's eye. Look at the man, Jesus, who himself suffered and rejoiced. Connect yourself to him in rejoicing. Not an idea, but the man, Jesus Christ. Uh, this, this uh, how do I say that? <laughs> this superseding truth. I think Paul is trying to always lift up the head of the believer. That um, when we are in the midst of trial or suffering, something is on us or we're in anxiety, we tend to be inward and downward focused people. We tend to kind of get trapped in our own small world and the worries of our lives suffocate us. Like it, we can't see outside the context of what is currently happening to us. And by saying, look at the Lord, uh, Paul is coming along and just trying to lift up the chin of the believer. 
He's trying to say, I want you to not make up something, not have a good idea. I want you to look up and see what's true. Look up from being trapped and everything that's worried. Look up and notice. God is real. You are redeemed. Your life has purpose even in the midst of trial. In fact, if you will join Jesus in the midst of this trial, this too can be good. Lift up your head. See who you are. Recognize who he is. You are a citizen of the true kingdom, a sibling of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are the first of a new order of creation, redeemed and restored, vindicated, loved by God, destined for eternity, and your life is full of opportunity to love and to grow. We get to lean into the trustworthy person of Jesus Christ. So the anxiety is normal. It's just not the end of the story. We are not meant to be overwhelmed, determined, defined, uh, or covered up in anxiety, but let rejoicing tower over anxiety. We are to trust not an idea, but we are to trust in the person of Jesus Christ. And three, part of Paul's answer is this becomes a learned or a learning response to suffering. Um, when Paul is teaching him, he says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. I let, you know, bring it to him in prayer. Let your gentleness be evident for the Lord is near. But then he gets to the crux of his argument where he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to the Lord. And then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, the crux here becomes, he says, you have in the midst of this challenge an action step. You learn by repetition and by decision to turn from your anxiety and to turn to Christ. He says here, the beginning of verse 6, he is playing again uh, with this word to grasp. And so it doesn't actually say so much do not be anxious about anything. This word merimanato means something more like uh, do not go on clinging to your anxiety about anything. Uh, do you remember that we taught a few weeks ago that we said in Eden, uh, Adam grasped for power, but Jesus did not grasp his authority, but laid it down. And Paul did not grasp his privilege as an ethnic Jew, but he laid it down to understand the greater privilege. Here he's using the same concept of saying, what are you holding on to? He says, "In when the moment of anxiety comes, are you holding on to anxiety or are you rejoicing in the Lord? Are you holding on to him? Uh, and it becomes this uh, concept, I think, of ongoing learning about what it is we are holding on to, that in the midst of the trial, we must learn by application or by actually doing it, learn how to turn and rejoice in the Lord. If it says, do not go on grasping your anxiety, but instead grasp on to the Lord. I want you to notice, I don't know if this is true about you, how easy is it to go on grasping your anxiety? I'm raising my hand and you don't have to, right? But it is natural and easy to hold our anxiety. 
Uh, if he's saying, in the moment where you have anxiety, I want you to bring that anxiety to me. I want you to not hold on to it, but I want you to come discuss it with me. We tend often, I think, like I said, we get downward. It's more natural for us in the midst of our anxiety or worry, instead of bringing it to him, to wrap it up in a warm blanket and bring it close to ourselves, right? In the midst of our worry, this is us. This worry defines us. It is safe to pull it in. And so we have this tendency to wrap that anxiety, pull it in close, make it ours. And he's saying, I want you to learn in the midst of real trouble to come to me. I want you to learn when things are really bothering you in the midst of your anxiety, let the anxiety open your hand, bring it to me, and let's talk it through. And the funny thing is, we are always practicing one response or the other. In the midst of trouble or worry or anxiety, you're either practicing we, that's the language I should use, we are either practicing learning how to hold on, rehearse, and grasp our anxiety, or we are learning how to let it go and bring it to God. And you are constantly rewiring or wiring or reasserting or making connections in your brain or chemistry about how we handle anxiety. So each time something comes up, and you come unwound or unraveled or freak out or you can't get a hold of it, we actually reinforce that connection in our mind. Does that make sense to you? But each time in the midst of worry that we instead, he's not saying the worry isn't real, in the midst of real worry that instead of coming unwound in that moment, which is, I'm just going to confess to you, my inclination that instead of coming unwound in that moment, we learn in gratitude and thankfulness to begin to rejoice in the Lord. He says, you will learn, you learn to not go on grasping your anxiety, but you learn to open your hand and come and speak to the Lord about it. That anxiety is normal, but it doesn't define you. The answer is Jesus and not an idea, but the process is learning that you are learning over time how to rejoice in the Lord. Now, I want you to know that I myself understand how natural worry is. I'm a natural worrier. As you get to know me, I'm built, I am a type A socializer. That means I worry about the direction the pencils are facing on my desk and what you think about me. In other words, I am equipped to worry about everything. And I have learned over time to not be uh, distracted by the worry, but how to talk to God about it. Uh, Somebody taught me a rule years ago that I think is helpful, and I gladly give to you. If you can worry about it, you can pray about it. If you can worry about it, you can pray about it because you can take the activity of your mind, you know, that busy cycle when you begin to think about things. You can take that activity of your mind, and instead of talking more to yourself about it, you can talk to God about it. When you pray, says, come to me in prayer, you break the vicious cycle between self-talk, where you are, keep talking to yourself and you're the worst conversation partner, because you're like, I should be worried about that. And your brain in return is like, I totally am worried about it. You're like, good, because you should be worried about it, right? And your emotions come up, the emotions feed the mind, the mind feeds the emotions, and you get in this cycle, this vicious cycle of self-talk And stopping to rejoice in the Lord with gratitude to talk to him breaks the cycle of self-talk and inserts his voice. 
It inserts your voice to him and his voice back to you. It breaks that cycle, that vicious cycle of only hearing from yourself. If we learn in the moment to lift up our head and to see the truth and to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of trial, and we learn over time by applying it, by each time learning. And when we don't, the next time learning again so that we learn again. There's no promise that the trials aren't there. There's just promise of the superseding joy of knowing Him, that rejoicing can tower over anxiety. And if we will lift up our head and see Him, then is this great promise of this Scripture. It says, do not go on being anxious or grasping onto your anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. It says, and then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. Uh, this This is a fantastic little word. It's a military term. It's a future active indicative military term that means God will, is, and will continue to do this thing. And what it should be more accurately uh, translated as is something like God is and will set up as a guardian around your heart and mind. He will take garrison over your heart and mind. He will set himself up like an active soldier. So all we can do is learn what to do, what we can by habit, but this is a promise God will come in in the person of Jesus Christ and take garrison. He will guard or work with or shape your heart and mind. We don't have the ability to shape our heart and mind, but this is a promise that Jesus will come in and begin to shape your heart and your mind. Tennyson said it this way much better than me. God's peace as a sentinel mounts guard over our lives, that he comes to literally take his place. God's peace comes to take a place, and our peace has a name. Jesus himself is called the peace of God, the prince of peace. Our hope is rejoicing in the Lord. So when it says God's peace, and this is not much of a stretch for me to say, when God's peace comes to guard our heart and our mind, Jesus comes to guard our heart and mind. As we learn to rejoice in the midst of our circumstances, it says the Lord Jesus comes like a warrior guardian over our heart and mind. Hebrews 7.25 assures us that Jesus is constantly praying over us and interceding for us, a guardian over our lives. Uh, Robert Murray McShane wrote about this, that idea that Jesus was praying, that he was guardian, that he was setting up uh, that position over our lives. If I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference, for he is praying over me. The guardian of our heart and mind, the guardian over our peace is the never-sleeping watchman, the lover and redeemer of our lives. Paul says, Jesus comes up to set like a guardian over your heart and mind and to bring peace which transcends all understanding. And I think certainly that means that when we have peace in the midst of difficulty, that doesn't make sense. That transcends some of our understanding that in the midst of hardship, we can rejoice. Can you imagine how confusing it was uh, for some of these people around Paul? We keep making your life worse. We just beat you and you're rejoicing. He's like, I didn't love the beating, but I love life. 
I am rejoicing in the Lord. And so that that passes understanding, certainly. But I also think that what Paul means to drive at here is God is able through the person of Jesus Christ to guard our hearts and minds in ways that are beyond our understanding. Uh, That he is able and works in ways and through means and protects and guides our lives in ways that are well beyond our understanding. The Bible says the Lord's ways are above our ways, which is a hilariously understated way of saying, wow, he is nothing like us. That in the midst of our trouble, you know, like I said, it gets small for us. We, we see our world in this tiny thing, but it's saying, but this is the God who created everything. This is the being who created, sustains, and understands the entire universe. So every particle and subatomic particle of your body, every quark and muon and boson and every atom and molecule and every space and every neuron and every part of your body effortlessly held in the palm of his hand. Every star and galaxy and supercluster and supernova held in the palm of his hand. And that God, that superseding God who understands, holds it all, knows us, loves us, and sets up as a guardian over our life. He's saying, that's who's with you. That supersedes your understanding. So in the midst of the little thing that you're worried about, you should know that the guardian is equipped. Like, like his ability to handle your problem is all together. God is not anxious. He is timeless. He has seen your whole life from beginning to end. He's seen the universe all put back together in one piece. He's unworried as you walk through these circumstances. We are worried because to us, cancer is the end of the story. Gotta say, I'm not worried. I am involved in every detail of your life, even if it isn't working out in the way you see fit. I will transform you. I will glorify you. I have purpose in your life. I'm using this situation. We're going to spend a trillion years in eternity where this reduces to zero. And you're going to see, I always had you. I'm the guardian over your life. I'm a sentinel over your heart and mind. I am the sovereign God who is set up over the top of you to guard you and bring you through. Your anxiety is normal. It's just tiny as part of the picture. Your anxiety is normal, but real life, real rejoicing supersedes anxiety. Your hope is not a good idea. Your hope is Jesus Christ. And so with Paul, he says, I urge you then, learn the discipline. Learn the wonderful discipline of turning to me in the midst of your trouble. That in the midst of trouble, small or large, you will with gratitude thank me. I am grateful, Lord, for this stress in my life right now because I'm going to learn to not hug it close, but to let it go and to trust in you. I am going to create a framework in my mind and my soul and my heart that learns to rejoice in you in all circumstances. And then the good of my life will be outstanding. And the trouble in my life will be bearable and even worth rejoicing in because you will be with me as the guard and garrison, as the one who watches me. Paul ends this whole section. We try each week to kind of give you a next step, a practical thing to do. And Paul ends this whole section on the work of your heart and mind 
by giving you the best practical advice. He says, learn all these things in real life, but in the meantime, stockpile the garden of your mind with good. He says, when it comes to the challenge of trusting me, what you've put into your mind will be the resource material that you use to process who I am. He says, so I urge you then, and this is how I'm going to end, as a practical next step, something you can do on Monday. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 8 and 9. He says, I urge you finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. The best way to manage your mind is not just to tear the weeds out, but to plant something good in its place. To prepare yourself to rejoice in the Lord in all circumstance, to know him in his truth, and to trust him, and to know that you are a normal human being dealing with normal life, but the answers are so much greater. Would you join me in a prayer? Lord, we give you our lives beginning with our hearts and minds. We choose you. We thank you that we can bring our real lives and concerns to you. We are thankful for the opportunities to trust you and to walk with you. Lord, even when we consider the difficulties of actual life, the tragedies like in Texas or the things that are going on in our life, we can lift those up with prayer, but we can look them right squarely in the face and say, Lord, in the midst of this difficulty, we trust you. We love you. We know that you are in control of all things and we are learning to walk with you. We practice together our response of rejoicing. And we pray, God, that as we learn to walk with you, to turn it over to you that you will set up as the guardian of peace over our hearts and minds and that we'll walk around with a joy and a peace that transcends understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 a.m.